everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. Man, oh man, did that feel good. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and the USA is officially the greatest team in CONCACAF and also probably the world. Uh, we are recording this very, very, very early on Monday morning, East Coast time. The U.S. men's national team handed Mexico a 1-0 loss in the final minutes of extra time in the 2021 Gold Cup final. That makes it dos acero on the summer when it comes to winning finals over Mexico. With me tonight to discuss Kellen Acosta, uh, if he should probably win the Ballon d'Or and why is my friend and yours. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. How you feeling, buddy? I'm feeling great, Taylor. I yeah. am. I'm yeah. still in shock, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's also late, as you mentioned. So there's a whole, I'm feeling a whole lot of different things and I don't really know what to say right now. Uh, I am right there with you. What I will say is that uh, I'm very happy uh, because when this game started, I tweeted it out beforehand. I tweeted the question of like the result aside, what would you like to see tonight? Yeah. And I think that's partially because at this point, I think we were still sort of feeling like there's some people who've improved their stock. There's some people who have played their way into contention for maybe the senior roster or as like a replacement spot on the senior roster. But it's still I wasn't quite there on this feels like a team that's going to beat Mexico really caused them problems. So I wanted to see some individual things. And then about halfway through the second half is when I really started to feel like they can get this done. There's a possibility. And then as we went into extra time, I just really, really, really wanted to win. And that that ended up being the case and that it happened in reg or excuse me, in extra time, but not having to go to penalties. I don't know if I could have handled a penalty shootout. Joe, uh, how loud was your reaction? Were you were you (laughs) muted when the goal happened? Were you just taking diligent notes with a furrowed brow or did you Uh. allow yourself that moment to celebrate? Uh, it was more inward celebration. Um, I wish I wish I could say I jumped out of my chair or whatever. Yeah. It was a great goal. It really was. And it, it was a, a free kick from Kellen Acosta that mirrored a free kick he'd had earlier on in that second half. Just really nice delivery yep. from him. A great header in from Miles Robinson on that goal. It's a great moment. And I don't think my reaction gave it the justice and, and the, the credit that it really deserved. But man, just I couldn't stop thinking in this game, really from the start of this game. I had no idea what the result was going to be. I didn't think the U.S. had a real shot to win this game. But I just kept thinking, this is such an incredible experience for these guys. The tempo and the speed at which this game was played very much mirrored the Nations League final, which is to say it mirrored a U.S.-Mexico game. It was incredibly intense. And even though a lot of the players on the field for the U.S. aren't aren't first choice guys, they're not. And we've talked about this all Gold Cup long, even before. What an incredible experience for these players to have. And, and for the for those players who are going to fill out the World Cup qualifying roster, what a great last chance for them to have right before World Cup qualifying starts. You couldn't ask for a better moment, a better opponent, a better style of game to prepare you for World Cup qualifying. And that was the whole purpose of this tournament, even outside of the result. It just everything aligned in this game, Taylor. And it was such an incredible experience for the players. I agree with you. But I would also say it was an incredible experience for us watching at home, yeah. for those watching in the stands. I think the, the stats I saw said it was about 90-10 in favor of L3 fans. But for the uh, the few dedicated U.S. fans there, I'm sure it was an experience. But watching at home and just seeing the team sort of gel, and it felt like this strange combination of the old-school U.S. teams that just fought and scrapped for every single thing and never gave up and always worked, combined with a little bit of the new school of the technical side, of the ability to play out of pressure on occasion, and the ability to kind of combine and transition and make Mexico uncomfortable. It was a really just nice thing to see, and for... Total Soccer Show, going back to Daryl and I first talking about Greg Berhalter taking over and 
it felt like the right hire, but it also felt like there was a lot of baggage coming with it. And especially with where the program had been, there was maybe not as much reason for optimism for where it was going. And now here we are with the U.S., as I said in the intro, beating Mexico twice in the same summer in finals, which doesn't often happen. Not even just the two thing, but just winning against Mexico in a final doesn't often happen for the U.S. So for it to occur in this way with these players and this combination of players from Daryl DK emerging, obviously not uh, performing tonight or not being in the game tonight, but still like Daryl DK sort of being part of this tournament is not a thing maybe we would have seen a year or two ago. Kellen Acosta being back in the team and being so pivotal for them. Another thing that maybe was unexpected. And and so many aspects of this team are like that, that it's just it's a reminder of how exciting it could be when the U.S. puts it together. And and I came away like at full time. I was right there with Alexi Lalas, and I think Andrew Weeby tweeted he was. I think Moe Du was pretty emotional. I, I, I teared up, man. It was, it's the first time in a while that the United States has got me in that way uh, on the men's or women's side. I feel like with the women, it's just this expected thing that they find their way to get a result. And here with the U.S. men, it wasn't. It didn't feel like it, this was going to be the case. It felt like hopefully they make the final, but they might not, might not, might not even do that with this sort of group of players that I think I I initially branded as like a C team, maybe a C plus team. It felt like this was the USA's C plus team against Mexico's maybe B or B plus team. And so again, a one nil win in that setting, in that actual setting with the kind of hostility of the crowd. I'm I'm pretty happy, Joe. I'm pretty happy right now. (laughs) I'm right there with you. This is a good, this is a really good Mexico team. And yes, they're missing certain players. A few of them are, are off of the Olympics and, and players like Diego Linas. And obviously they lost Chucky Lozano and I believe the opening game of the yep. tournament for Mexico with a really unfortunate injury. But overall, this is still such a, a strong team. The lineups come out and the big matchup that everybody has circled in red pen is Tecatito up against George Bello. And, yeah. and that is, that is probably the most extreme difference in perceived quality from any individual matchup that you can make on the field. But it is not an inaccurate representation of the feeling coming into this game between these two teams. It's Mexico with, I believe the stat on the broadcast was, and I guess I could have figured this out. No, I don't need the broadcast. But it's eight of 11 players from Mexico who started yep. in that Nations League final. And I think three. Oh, I, think three I, I think I went back and looked at the 11. I think it's seven of the 11 and then okay. Pineda subbed on. Yeah, John Strong okay. said eight. I think Doug McIntyre said seven. So then I had to go back and find my notes. It's why you should keep your notes in one notebook. And then you <laughs> can just flip back and find that game. And that's why I should actually do my own research. Um, but but still, the point stands of the difference in experience and, and just real quality here and the fact that the U.S. did come out and fight like they did in yep. this game. They are, they were not the better team, tactically speaking, I would say. It's not that Great Baralter got his tactics all wrong or any of that stuff, but Mexico was in control of large stretches of this game. They moved mm-hmm. the ball really well into the half spaces. They were really dangerous on that right side with Tecadito and Chaka Rodriguez overlapping or, or just being high and wide on that side oftentimes. Mexico was not bad in this game. I, I think if you play this game a bunch of times, Mexico probably wins most of them. But still, the fact that the U.S. competed how they did, when you, when you have a gulf in talent and you're at a talent deficit, the, the biggest and best way to make up for that is just by trying really, really hard. Yep. And the U.S. tried really, really hard. Kellen Acosta is probably the best example of that. But you could see it all over the field, and it's it's just encouraging to watch something like that. And I would, I think this is a version of an olive branch uh, for our L3 listeners slash L3 fans out there. I, I do have a feeling that if uh, Raul Jimenez were fit and ready and able to play hmm. in these games, I think him at, at the heart of their attack, he probably turns in one or two of those chances in a way that Pineda and uh, Fundes Mori could not. So I think if they did have maybe uh, Jimenez starting 
it goes a different way, but they didn't, and it doesn't. And I think you could also make the argument that if the United States were, tar- were starting Tyler Adams, <laughs> um, when, when you start Tyler Adams, you tart him, apparently, uh, <laughs> or Weston McKinney or Christian Pulisic or any of those kind of big-name players, I think you could make that argument back and forth. So really it just comes down to the individual performances on the night, the way the managers made their adjustments and the tactics they went with. And in the end, we have a 1-0 win for the United States, which again makes them the best team in the world, uh, at least on the men's side. So that makes me very happy. Joe, let's talk about what these teams were trying to do from the outset. Let's go with the U.S. first. Uh, four changes from the group that started in the quarters and the semis against Qatar. We had Reggie Cannon coming in for Shaq Moore at right back, though Shaq Moore finishes the game. Same thing for George Bello and Sam Vines, with Sam Vines finishing out. And then Eric Williamson for Jean-Luc Abusio, Zardes for Daryl DK up top. And for the most part... Joe, I think that was about what we said we wanted. I think we were sort of leaning towards Sam Vines or just expecting it to be Sam Vines, but we both wanted to see Eric Williamson and hope that would be the case. No disrespect to Jean-Luc Abusio, but I think Eric Williamson, we felt like, would give us something more proactive in midfield. And then we thought Zardes would have just a little bit better movement and familiarity with the system, ability to operate within, and I think that probably was the case on the evening. So I had no real concerns about that U.S. starting 11, except for maybe, as you've already pointed out, uh, George Bello versus Tecatito did make me slightly nervous and made me pretty nervous for most of the first half. Yeah, I was I was scared for George Bello. I was scared <laughs> for I, just him and, and his future and all of those things. I, I'm still kind of baffled by that decision from Greg Berhalter. And maybe by the time people are listening to this, there'll already be an answer as to why he made that change. Because it's not as if Sam Vines wasn't healthy. We saw him in the latter stages of this game. So it, it appears to be just a straight-up personnel decision, a tactical choice or an individual matchup choice that Baralter made. And and by and large, I think it actually worked out just fine. Bello didn't get dusted a whole lot, and he generally stuck with Tecatito pretty well, I thought, in this game. So that one concern that I had was not eased immediately. My worry was not you know fading from the start of this game, but it didn't end up really hurting the U.S. And outside of that one change, I thought the rest of the changes made a lot of sense. Uh, I will say, if Bello does get burned, I'm I am maybe not talking as favorably about Baralta in this this lineup right now. But still, most of this made sense, and it ended up working out. So I, I'm not going to look too far into it. Uh, n- nor do I think you should, because when it comes to like left back performances from a player who can both attack and defend, it tends to be Serginho Dest, and then question mark, and then maybe Anthony Robinson. Not saying that George Bello is now the number two left back. I don't know where he is in that depth chart. I don't think he's number two. He's certainly not number one. But I think he helped his case a lot when it comes to the U.S. men's national team at senior level, that to play those 65 minutes, to battle Tecatito, to do his defensive job, but I think a difficult difficult defensive job with Mexico trying to overload that side and not putting a foot wrong in such an obvious way that he was punished for it. And if anything, I thought did well to play out of pressure when it was the right choice, go long on a couple occasions when building out would have been a bad idea, and mostly just not being slow when on the ball in a way that maybe other U.S. players were in various moments. Again, it's one of those performances, Joe, we talk about it from time to time, where a player not standing out in a negative way yeah. is a positive when you look at the overall result. Absolutely. that's Taylor, that's the perfect way to describe it. I was just thinking, man, yeah, if you told me that George Bella was the, the person that everyone was confused about and asking questions of myself very much included in that group— if you told me that, I wouldn't have known which guy was George Bellow on that roster. I wouldn't have known which player we were all asking questions about. Not that he was dominant defensively or dominant going forward, but an okay performance. And that is a benchmark in and of itself. Yes. And I, I think for Mexico, we had 
a kind of standard shape and approach in my mind. It was a 4-3-3 at times, but then you had Alvarez starting as the holding midfielder, but oftentimes dropping between the two center backs. We had the change there with Carlos Salcedo not starting. Instead, it was Hector Moreno who then, or excuse me, it was Araujo starting in place of Carlos Salcedo, but then Salcedo comes on for Moreno and uh, justified not starting and also being subbed out in the same game because he looked rough. But him aside, I thought it was still a pretty good result for Mexico. I think if one or two of those chances are taken more cleanly, I think this game is going a very different way because Tecatito was still looking very lively. I thought uh, Funes Mori is going to come under fire and has come under fire already, it seems, in Mexican uh, media. But I thought he, the way he battled with the U.S. backline and forced the center backs back, but then would drop in and find space, but then would also try to lead the line and get on the end of crosses, I thought he had a lot to do and did his best with it. But I think the opening parts of this game really were the U.S. setting up to frustrate Mexico and then try to adapt to what Mexico were doing. And so when that was Alvarez dropping between the two center backs, I think early on, that then it was Calvin Acosta tracking him deep, or at least the U.S. midfield stepping up. But that did leave gaps between that, that three central midfielders and the U.S. back line. I think they rectified that. And I think a lot of the first half was little adjustments, especially from the U.S. side, to just try to counteract what Mexico were doing and slowly figure them out. It's like you don't want to add like too much sugar to your coffee. If you if you take uh, sugar in your coffee, you add like a little bit, you taste it, you add a little bit, you taste it. Because, you know, you can always add more, but it's it's tougher to remove the sugar once it's been <laughs> added. And so I think the U.S. didn't want to overreact and make too big of a change and then cause themselves even more problems. I thought it was a logical approach to adjusting to what Mexico were throwing at them. That's said like a man who's never strained sugar out of his coffee before. <laughs> uh, that's a real quitter attitude, Taylor. No, I, I think I think you're right. The U.S. come into this game and they don't play with the ball a ton. They have a few moments of possession and a few moments where they keep the ball early on. But it always looked a little bit nervy, and maybe that's best uh, shown, best illustrated through Matt Turner's heavy touch in the second minute. James Sands plays in the ball back, and Matt Turner takes uh, a touch, and he takes a second touch, and Funes Mori is breathing right down his neck, and the U.S. are able to escape that moment without any real danger or any real difficulty coming against them. It felt a lot like that Mark McKenzie moment in the beginning of the Nations League, except they don't get punished for it with a goal. I believe that was also in the second minute, and I believe it was Tecatito who scored that back in June. But the U.S. had a few moments where they, they played the ball better than that. But by and large, I saw this game for the U.S. perspective being a, a lot about their press. And you, you just mentioned it there, Taylor, a little bit with Acosta. Sometimes stepping to Edson Alvarez, I also noticed that it was Jossie Zardes as the number nine in the front three, often dropping back and either shadowing Alvarez or just trying to shield him and block off passing angles into him. And it was it was a lot of those constant adjustments as the play develops, as Mexico's possession developed and they had the lion's share of it. As Mexico would move the ball and as their players would reposition themselves, the U.S. in that 4-3, through three, sometimes it looked like a 4-4-2 diamond with Zardes as the tip of that diamond. They're constantly shifting. They're constantly adjusting and rotating players and stepping and dropping to try and keep the distances between themselves and Mexico's players at appropriate length so they can still close the ball down, but they're not leaving other options exposed. It's a really hard line to walk, and we've seen the U.S. try to walk that line in the past. 
They did it well in this game at times, and there are some very key pressing moments from the U.S. in this game. They also got burned a lot, and that's what happens when you play a team as good as Mexico. Mexico's going to find those weaknesses. They're going to be able to play through you, and that happened a bunch. Another reason why I don't think Mexico – it's hard to lose, but I don't think Mexico fans and certainly the Federation should be overly negative on this game. Like Tata Martino potentially being fired, I think that would be a big mistake. Mexico had so many moments of danger, and they were – really threatening the U.S. at times, and part of that was them playing through the U.S.'s press. I want to talk about what Mexico were doing. I want to talk about what the United States did in response, and we've got a ton of other things still to be discussed. But first, Joe, I'd like to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. We are back. We are talking USA v. Mexico in the first half. Joe, as you mentioned there, the United States uh, really relying on that press to, I think, just sort of throw Mexico off kilter a little bit and not let them get too much into a rhythm. I did have one question for you before we moved on from that idea. Who for the United States did you feel like was responsible for leading that, like, like that, the way they were stepping or organizing when to step hmm. and how? Was there one player or was it much more of a kind of just team effort? I think it was more team-wide, but there are, I think, two players and two roles, rather, that do a lot of leading the line, and that's the wingers. In this game, it was Paul Areola and Matthew Hoppe. We've seen the U.S. run this press before. The, it's not fully a diamond, but it, it's that nine dropping into midfield as the the tip of midfield. And so when that happens, it, it's Paul Areola, it's Matthew Hoppe, it's the right and left winger who are stepping and engaging the, the opposition center backs. And so in this game, it was Areola and Hoppe 
constantly stepping to usually Saucedo and Araujo, though it changed slightly depending on the, the positioning for Mexico. They would step and engage and also they'd bend their runs. They'd almost curve it like a banana. They'd bend their runs to deny passes out wide and make those easy, simple passes out to the fullbacks, Gallardo and Rodriguez in this game. They'd bend their runs to try and block those angles and funnel the ball into areas where the U.S. actually wanted them to play the ball. So it really was Ariola and Hoppy whose job it was to step forward and engage Mexico and cue everyone else. And it didn't happen like that every time, but it happened like that a lot. And that's a very important job for the U.S. And it was two guys with very high work rates doing that job. And I think it makes sense to have Ariola and Hoppy stepping forward so often. I think they did their job pretty well. I think I agree with you. My my, I have knocks against both of them for different reasons. And I think Matthew Hoppy on the evening did everything we want to see him do, and we're going to talk plenty more about him. But the tenacity and the, like he was just such a you want him on your team and you never want to play against him sort of <laughs> player in this one. And I did appreciate that. Uh, I will say, though, that there were times when I felt like his press was too central. He was too close to Giassi Zardes. And when mm. he would go, usually to try to apply pressure to Moreno a couple of different times. I tweeted a few stills of this. Um I felt like his run at Moreno would be, I think he thought he had a wider angle than he did because if he's starting five yards to the left and then he makes that sort of bending banana run, as you referenced, Joe, uh, he, you're starting from a position where when you make that bend in, if you're wider, you're cutting off that option at wide to Chaka Rodriguez. When you're more central and you're making that kind of just straight line run, that ball is on. And as soon as that ball was on with Matthew Hoppy stepping forward, now there is a breakdown for the United States because you have Rodriguez advancing from the right fullback position. Now he's in a more attacking position. Usually that would coincide with Tecatito sprinting inside and pulling George Bello with him. And that left a pretty sizable overload on that left-hand side for the United States, the right-hand side for Mexico, because now it's basically Sebastian Legette having to split the difference between Chaka Rodriguez and Jonathan DeSantos. And oftentimes that meant DeSantos wide open in the middle who could then receive a ball in direct play. And it's a credit to Sebastian Legette that on a couple different moments, he manages to step between the two of them so that pass isn't on, but also limit what Chaka Rodriguez can do getting forward. So... Some individual effort from Sebastian Legette I thought did really well. But overall, that was the big pattern I saw from the United States is leaving that side too exposed and not even just because it was Tecatito versus George Bello. I almost feel like Tecatito was this like big shiny thing that the U.S. was supposed to focus on. And when everybody collapsed on that, like bugs to uh, to like the, the bug zapper, then <laughs> Mexico could make runs into spaces afterwards. And I think that was a thing that the U.S., occasionally were able to disrupt, but I think left open too many times in that first half. And it was a thing that I had noted, went back and watched, made more notes about, and was really hoping they would deal with in the second half. And for the most part, I think they did. And it's it's so hard if you're the U.S. because it's really, really challenging to fully deny access into that zone, into Mexico's yeah. advanced right portion of the field, the half space, the wing, whatever. All of those sections combined, that's the space that Mexico is really targeting. If you go in and look at the chalkboard from this game and, and you see where all the key passes came from, where all the chances created for Mexico came, they're almost all from that right corner of the final third. And it's it's so challenging to block that off. And, and you're right, Taylor, part of that could be Hoppy not taking the perfect right angle or not timing his runs or not starting them from the right position. I think that is a very fair criticism. But also, it's just 
that was Mexico's game plan. And I think they executed it really well with a con- almost a constant overload. If you pull Hoppy out, then they're going to have oftentimes a 2v1 against George Bell, although Hoppy, uh, although Legette, excuse me, and Robinson both did some good defensive work on that side too. It just, it, a lot of it was really well worked possession from Mexico, whether that's breaking the U.S.'s press or even when they had the ball established in the final third or in the middle third, there were a, a number of really nice switches, a, a couple of them at least from Hector Herrera, out of those a, a nice diagonal from the middle of the field out to the right when Mexico's already played through the U.S.'s press or just has established possession higher up the field. And Mexico go to work in the right half space in the right wing in a similar way, just starting from a different spot. So it, it almost felt to me like no matter what the U.S. was trying to do, they were still getting overloaded. And so then it was about damage control and, and yep. controlling the ball that came into the box. And you're playing with fire at that point. The U.S. got a little toasty, but they didn't quite get burned in another game. If this game was run back. They probably do get burned. But uh, that's the way the ball bounces, I guess. Indeed, indeed. But I also think you have to make your own luck a little bit, to quote Billy Zane from Titanic. And uh, slash Dwight Schrute quoting (laughs) Billy Zane, which is how I actually know that quote. Uh, But I think it was the U.S., like being enough of just a, like a mosquito level annoying to Mexico to keep them honest in the first half and more so in the second half. That's a roundabout way of saying basically that I think the U.S. did enough little things, especially when they pressed high to just remind Mexico, oh, we can be got at. We are vulnerable here. We can't just roll the dice completely. We can't commit everybody forward. And I think there's the moment, I think it's the 26th minute when it's U.S. high pressure. Uh, it's when Legette goes charging in. And after a couple different, like, like good aggressive steps from the U.S., Legette wins the ball. He plays it to Ariola. I think that's when Ariola bangs it off the post. Um, but that I think was a big moment in just not letting Mexico keep having attacking play and so often we've seen the u.s going back to like the early 2000s but obviously more recently we've seen the u.s sit off kind of not necessarily bunker but very much look to get numbers behind the ball invite mexico forward frustrate them to the extent they can and then hit them on the break and the u.s approach in large parts of this game was not wholly dissimilar from that but i think anytime you do then vary it up and go at at your opponent aggressively it just it's going to make them think and if you can make them like have to change what they want to do instead of playing the simple ball 10 yards forward. Oh, never mind. That ball's not on. I got to play it over here and I'm under pressure and oh, I'm nervous. Like it's just, it's a harder thing to go from not under pressure. I've got all the time in the world to, oh, I've got somebody on me. And if you've been used to that pressure, if that pressure, if that's become just sort of your, like your opposite operational standard in this game, when you suddenly have to operate a lot faster, I think it becomes much harder. And I do think that sort of change in approach at times from the United States in the first half and in the second half kept Mexico from fully dominating and fully getting into the comfortable positions where they swing a cross in, it doesn't go off, they swing a second cross in, and now they somebody gets ahead to it and it goes over. The third time the header is on frame, the fourth time it's in the back of the net because they've gotten into that pattern and that sort of rotation. When you can disrupt that and force them back and force them to attack in different ways, they can't get that level of consistency and comfort, which you might need if you don't have your top, top tier goal scorers around. And they didn't, and they didn't, and the U.S. did. So credit to them for that, though I think there were still many adjustments to be made at halftime and into the second half. We've talked about the press from a defensive perspective, which makes sense. It's probably the the primary thing there. But I also think there's a good reason to look at the U.S.'s high press from an offensive perspective as mm-hmm. a, a chance creation method. Because we've seen the U.S. and we saw this in, in the Nations League final. We've seen it in the past. 
the U.S. maybe, especially with this group, probably don't have the quality to play out of Mexico's press. Because for as much pressing as the U.S. did, Mexico also did a ton of high pressing from the start of this game. They were down the U.S.'s throats trying to win balls high up the field, and they did a pretty good job of, of doing that and forcing turnovers throughout this game. So I think I think Greg Barthor comes into this game knowing, okay, look, guys, we're not really going to be able to play through their press and manufacture a ton of chances with the ball movement and all that good stuff that we like, but this is probably not the game for it. And so the U.S. come out, and, and with their high press, not only do they make Mexico's life difficult at times, not only do they win the ball in good spots at times, but they then used the, the opportunities where they won the ball to go quickly. And Taylor, you talked about that 26-minute chance for Paul Ariola. It's the... It, maybe it's the best chance of the game out. Uh, that's probably not true. It's the best chance of the first half, certainly for the U.S. and probably for Mexico. And, and then there's moments in the second half as well. There's a string of U.S. chances starting around the 69th minute that, that really starts with a high press. And it's Paul Ariola winning the ball from Saucedo. And then it's uh, Matthew Hoppe shooting. And he had a couple other options in the box, but I can't fault him too much for taking that shot. It's moments like that where the U.S. do create, whether it's a full chance or a half chance or whatever you want to call it, create opportunities that I don't think they're really capable of creating against a Mexico-type opponent with their ball movement. They instead took this game by the horns and said, okay, we want to press and create chances that way. And I think even though it very nearly hurt them, I can see a lot of logic in that tactical approach from Greg Berhalter, and it did ultimately pay off in this game. I want to remind listeners to pay attention to that like 69th-minute time period because I think that is a huge turning point in this game. But before that happens, I think Mexico came out and to start the second half, it seemed like things could get out of control pretty quickly. And I think a little bit of that is because the United States did sort of adjust to the overload that kept happening wide. And I saw Paul Areola in the opening 15 minutes of this half, not always, but somewhat regularly dropping in and almost being a left midfielder. And in that moment, the U.S. were essentially defending in a 4-4-2. It wasn't his starting position. It wasn't a dedicated thing. He was never moving to, like, left wing back or anything like that. But just that there was more of a dedicated effort to getting back into that space, it just meant that now Chaka Rodriguez doesn't have 20 yards of space to work with or that when Tecatito goes inside, there isn't a a huge gap for Jonathan DeSantos to occupy. And so I think the U.S. making that slight adjustment – did then make Mexico change a bit more. But I think the way Mexico changed, and I think this was maybe a thing that they had planned for and discussed at halftime, was to just be essentially much more aggressive in the way they were attacking. And that meant uh, Alvarez less regularly just automatically dropping in between the two center backs, which is the thing he did throughout the first half. Still did it in the second half, but oftentimes when Mexico would build out, he was 15 to 20 yards further up the field. And then it was almost like Jonathan DeSantos was ahead of him. And then there were four to five attackers in kind of a line pushing the U.S. back. And so I think Mexico were more willing to go direct and go direct down the channels as opposed to trying to like play through the middle and catching the U.S. out that way. And I think they did start to have a lot of luck with that because the United States, with the numbers they had centrally, I think even when they would have Paulo Riola drop back and would sort of, sort of shift over to one side or the other, there was still just so many players committed to the attack from Mexico in so many different positions that I think they struggled. And that's where we did get the, I think Pineda had two chances inside of like two or three minutes. And, and that's where it seemed like the U.S. were starting to lose a little bit of the momentum, maybe losing a little bit of the energy. 
And that's where we start to get our, our substitutions and our first uh, changes. We have Shaq Moore and Sam Vines coming on for Reggie Cannon and George Bello. So a change up of the fullbacks. We have Christian Roldan coming on in place of Sebastian Legette. And the Legette one feels more of a like pre-planned. He's played a lot of minutes. He's got some tired legs. We need Roldan to come on. But I also think Burhalter talked about trusting Roldan to come in and be an impact uh, substitution. And I think for the two fullbacks coming on and Shaq Moore and Sam Vines, I think they had more, I wouldn't say much more, but I would say more license to be involved in the attack and to get forward with like the regularity they wanted. And I think that was not a thing we saw as much from the U.S. in the first half. And so I think that also makes Mexico change what they're trying to do a little bit. So, Joe, I've talked about the way Mexico started the second half, the way the U.S. adjusted. We haven't quite gotten to the U.S. starting to play themselves into the game a bit more. Anything you wanted to talk about from maybe the start of the second half up until about the 70th minute? Sure. Yeah, one thing I'd noted is as the second half gets underway, the U.S. have that early opportunity. It's not a chance, but it's Eric Williamson showing why he's involved in this team. He shows a little bit of quality and and slips Sebastian Legette in behind and the pass is a little bit overhit, but it's a nice moment from Williamson. After that, Mexico really does start to attack. I believe it's early on in the second half when Hector Herrera kind of flails at the cross coming in from the right wing. He doesn't ever sort out how he wants to attack that ball and it's not a huge danger to Matt Turner but then it's Pineda with those two chances that you mentioned there Taylor and and Mexico are really threatening and part of that was them just being very very good in attacking good spots and having a concrete game plan from Tata Martino and part of it also was the U.S. just making it too easy for Mexico they were a little sloppy with the ball in the second half Sands has two passes blocked uh, by Mexican players. The first one is he's trying to play out of pressure a little bit and find Reggie Cannon up the right side. Probably takes a little bit too long. He's not in a good spot there. I don't know how much of that is his fault, but it's not a good situation for the U.S. The next one is just a minute or two later, and it's George Bello putting James Sands in a pretty tough spot with a with an opponent closing him down as Bello plays him the ball from the left side of, of the U.S.'s own half into a more interior space where Sands is. And so that's a tough moment as well. And so there, there are those moments where Mexico is really pressing the U.S. And, and being aggressive and winning the ball and causing problems. Then there's also moments where the U.S. just give Mexico the ball. Matthew Hoppy has a turnover in the 52nd minute that leads to a chance right down his wing. Mexico see that Hoppy's pulled out after, after he's more interior when the U.S. lose the ball. They play right down his side and have an overload on George Bello. Then four minutes later, it's Sebastian Legette who underhits a pass to Matthew Hoppy. It's just these moments that are starting to add up for the U.S., and they're making their lives way harder than, than they actually have to be. So it's those turnovers added with Mexico's quality and their approach added to the U.S.'s then they just entered this weird, overly aggressive transition passing phase. And Williamson, Legette, Acosta all just start trying to really force balls mm-hmm. in transition, all one after another. There's like a 60-second period where it is those three players back to back to back doing very similar things. And then finally, Taylor, I think the subs come in and they're needed because it gives the U.S. this breath of this chance to breathe, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. And it's the 65th minute with the subs you already talked about. And after that, we're so close to that 69th minute period where the U.S. really do start to crawl back into this game and show, you know, we actually might get a goal here in regulation, which they didn't. But we might actually be able to step forward, press more, win the ball in good spots and then actually sustain some attacks ourselves. And I, I do think that subbing opportunity in the second half was whether whether the change was caused by that or whether it just is sort of signified by those subs coming on. There was a notable, noticeable change in the second half in the U.S.'s demeanor and how they were moving the ball and pressing. 
And and it like there were a lot of Rocky Four analogies uh, in this game, including when I think the crowd started to turn on Mexico a little bit. But I think that was also the like like he's not a machine, he's a man sort of moment when they did uh, go and press again, and it's Ariola robbing uh, Salcedo in that 69th minute sequence. But again, we go back to when the United States went with that press, and especially when they went for that press against Salcedo, there were vulnerabilities and there were opportunities to be exploited. And I think for Mexico, there's an awareness of this is the reason we didn't start this guy. We're now having to play him because of an injury, but we can't really back him to be calm on the ball and make smart decisions. And that's where I saw Alvarez start dropping in more and doing the sort of maybe just being a little bit closer in between the center backs and helping with build out. But when Mexico have already adjusted to having uh, Herrera basically join that front three and making it a front four, Chaka Rodriguez overloads on one side, and now it's almost a front five. But if you have your your main midfielder dropping deep, then that means Jonathan DeSantos has to drop deeper. But if that line stays high, now you've got this sort of stretched out, like like almost an H shape in the way Mexico were. Of like You've got one line, you've got a line way ahead of them, and you've got like two dots in the middle, which is like the crossbar there. And, and I think it made it difficult for Mexico to find that same level of consistency in the way they wanted to attack. They still get those chances, but I think when the U.S. presses them and reminds Mexico, hey, you got to be a little bit cautious, you do still have to think about what we're throwing at you, that momentum shifts and the United States starts to get a few more opportunities and Mexico have to start making a few more fouls than maybe they wanted to. And I think we see the importance of holding your substitutions, but maybe also having a plan for when they're going to be made. So credit to Berhalter to, for that and many of the things which are still to be discussed. Uh, Joe, let's take one more break and then we will close this one out uh, in either the next 15 or 45 minutes. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. 
All right, Joe, we've picked up where the U.S. started to maybe, I wouldn't say dominate. I wouldn't say control. I don't think that was ever necessarily a thing the U.S. was doing until maybe the very end of this game overall. But I think the United States did start to make some smart decisions. Berhalter makes those changes. The U.S. gets a little more confidence. I think they're also willing to be pragmatic. I think some of the times they got caught on the ball. James Sands, you mentioned, I think George Bellow has one. Uh, uh, Matthew Hoppe certainly has a few of them. I think some of that is them not wanting to just hoof the ball long and just clear it and then step higher. I think there's that focus on, no, we're going to build out. We're going to be uh, possessing the ball and and smart in what we do. And then they would get caught. And once the United States were like, I think Shaq Moore comes on. One of the first things he did was just receive a ball and just lumped it up the field. And then the United St- States stepped up 15 yards from that. And that was the thing I think they weren't doing as much. But now Mexico have to retreat more. It's not just trying to build and get caught. If you're lumping the ball back down, they have to build and you can put them under pressure. And again, I think that helps swing the momentum again, not necessarily in the U.S.'s favor, but it balances it more and it makes it more of just a thought experiment for Mexico. They have to think about things. They have to worry about things. They have to consider other options and other vulnerabilities that maybe they weren't thinking about when they had more of the ball and more joy in their press. And credit to the U.S. for for actually giving Mexico some of those things to think about. One of the best moments for the U.S. in this game, and Taylor, I saw you tweeting about this, is Miles Robinson's driving run forward. It's, oh, yeah. I, I think it's the 71st oh, yeah. minute, as I have it noted, it but it's, it's right around the 70th minute. And Miles Robinson, the U.S. are in possession. Robinson gets on the ball. There's this big gap for him to exploit. And so he just drives into it, which I love. He drives into it, plays the ball wide to Paul Areola. Areola crosses it in. The ball finds Matthew Hoppe, who cuts past Rodriguez a little bit, just chops him sort of in the box, earns a corner. The U.S. then take the corner. And then just a few minutes later, or maybe it, maybe it's the following sequence. I, I can't remember. But it's Hector Herrera cleating uh, Eric Williamson in the head, which I don't think was intentional. I don't know what his foot's doing up there. So I don't know. Maybe that was foolish on my part to to not look too much into it. But either way, the U.S. earn a foul there. And then it's that free kick that Acosta has into the box that mirrors his game-winning assist later on yes, in it this does. match. So it's it's a sustained period where the U.S. are actually causing Mexico some problems, giving them some things to think about, and changing the rhythm of the game, which I think was much needed for the U.S. to break out of their half a little bit and, and actually cause Mexico some problems with the ball. Because not all the problems can not all of the U.S.'s attacking chances can come from the press. They need to find a few other avenues to to actually attack and get forward. And they were able to do that some in the middle portion of the second half. And then they make a, a additional, I would say, uh, smart changes. We have Paul Ariola going off in the 87th, I think it was, uh, as Gianluca Busio coming on for Eric Williamson. And it was Joachini coming on for Paul Ariola. And Ariola at that point, I think I wrote in my notes in the 80th minute that he needed to go. Not that he had a bad performance, but that I think his defensive work rate, work rate was not what it needed to be. And I think he had lost the ability. I think the legs were tired. Berhalter talked about the left backs or the full backs were kind of banged up. The wide attacking options were limited. We knew that going into the tournament. We certainly knew that going into this game. So I think Ariola at that point was pretty gassed. So to let Hoppy kind of move to that side where he could rest and then cycle back over to where Joaquini wanted to be and they could rotate and they could kind of alternate and who was leading the press and who was being that aggressive kind of playmaker from an attacking and defensive position. Um, I thought that was pretty wise. And then I thought bringing in Busio and just getting fresh legs in the center of midfield. I, I thought Eric Williamson was fine. I don't think he had like the lights out game that we hoped he would. But I also think he did, again, enough stuff to kind of justify that start. And then Bello comes in and or excuse me, uh, Busio. I knew I would do it. Busio comes in and even uh, I think in the. 
play that leads to the free kick that leads to the goal. It's Busio getting the ball deep while the U.S. are trying to transition. He comes under immediate pressure, but he plays, I think it's one touch to receive, one touch to pass the ball 40 yards up the field. Uh, and then it's Joachini who draws the foul. Like the swiftness in that attack and the quickness of the play, I think you don't have, if though, if that is Eric Williamson, not because Busio is better, but because Busio just has fresher legs and can move faster, think faster and execute faster and catch Mexico out and play in a, a, a teammate. And then the U.S. get that free kick. You already mentioned it, Joe, very reminiscent of the one of the 74th minute. That one, uh, I think, finds Jossie Zardes. And then that's the one where Paul Ariola, I think his shot is saved by Talavera's back. Here, the shot was not saved. I thought it might end up coming back for offside, but it wasn't. Instead, it's a go for Miles Robinson, Joe. And it made me happy. I'm guessing it did you as well. Oh, it did. And that was part of the reason to go back to the beginning of this episode. That was part of the reason behind my muted reaction, mm-hmm. just immediately assuming that it was going to be called back yep. to protect my own emotional health. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't. And so that worked out really well. Taylor, can I back us up? Sorry, real quick. Sure. Just to the beginning of extra time. I don't know why that cracked me up so much. It's late, folks. Um, <laughs> we've talked a lot about the U.S.'s press already, and I'm going to do it just one more time. I'm really sorry. My favorite pressing moment of this game that I think really – embodied this is me getting really narrative-y and, and poetic i guess but it, it, it really embodied yeah, 90 first minute yep. yeah it's right after the opening kickoff of extra time yep. the u.s has run so much in this game they've chased a lot of this game they haven't really been the better team for this game and yet they come out in extra time mexico have the opening kick they play the ball back into their own half and the u.s are high pressing they're in their grill joe Akini presses araho hoppy presses sacedo who then plays it back to the goalkeeper then joe Akini presses the goalkeeper who plays a chipped ball forward into midfield where acosta gets to it first the u.s play forward and they win a corner kick just that moment that i don't know 20 seconds 30 seconds max from from the first step from joe Akini to acosta getting his foot on the ball and the u.s moving forward really really quickly that, for me, embodied what Greg Berhalter wanted this game to look like. And it didn't work all the time. It, it wasn't even close to working a lot of the time. But it gave Mexico trouble a good chunk of the time. And so it, it, the balance of of when it worked and when it didn't work, ultimately it worked out for the U.S. And I just really liked that moment because I thought it was a fitting way to describe how this game went for the U.S. It, it wasn't them breaking Mexico down with pretty possession. It was them getting up, getting in their grill, winning the ball, and going forward quickly and trying to cause problems, getting a goal ultimately off of a set piece, things like that. It wasn't glamorous, but that moment I thought captured it really well. And I think, Joe, you're smart to point to that because uh, in the pregame, Stu Holden talked about Burhalter talking about he wanted the U.S. to be aggressive and up for the kind of physicality that this game would inevitably present. And I think the officiating crew did a very good job of calling it tight, but then calling it consistently tight. So there weren't too many wild moments. There was the uh, Herrera moment that you mentioned with the high boot. But for the most part, I think this game was was called pretty well and pretty tight. But I think the U.S. then, when they come out, there are those early moments where the press doesn't work quite as well or they're slow on the ball, but they are going in for challenges. And there's – I forget what the minute was, but it was like uh, – I think, yeah, the 48th minute uh, to start the second half, George, George Bello gets called for a foul, and that was the 20th total foul of the game because I think the U.S. wanted to come out and sort of – establish early that they were going to battle for everything. And so that we start extra time with the United States doing the same thing. But this time that press forces that long ball, Acosta wins it. And really for the rest of my notes, it's there's a few chances for Mexico, but it's a lot of U.S. 
pressing, U.S. winning the ball, U.S. getting corners. Acosta has the double Olympico attempt. The one <laughs> Mexico uh, chance that I have written down was Salcedo shooting from like 30 yards out, uh, which was a, a maybe even 40 yards. That was a choice, but I think that also showed Mexico had effectively run out of options and run out of ideas. And I think it became a slugfest of sorts where they were relying on committing numbers and the individual talent of those numbers to making something happen. And the United States, for their part, I think, reacted to that, made proactive changes, albeit defensive proactive, if that makes sense. But I think once you sort of weather that initial storm, prove that you can stand up to the coordinated attack that also has elements of improvisation in it and you roll with those punches figure it out and then start to kind of get opportunities of your own I, it, it felt like mexico were not holding on necessarily but at the very least no longer playing with that dominance but instead sort of probing and trying but still being cautious and so it seemed like we were going to extra time and then to penalties we did go to extra time but we didn't have to go to penalties joe because it's a great winner for miles robinson uh standing in an offside position when the free kick or when kellen acosta begins his run up but then just barely onside when the ball is actually struck it is hit to the exact same spot that kellen acosta hits the 74th minute free kick i went back and watched that one this time though miles robinson uh has uh, he's goal side of Alvarez because Alvarez, I think, thinks he's going to be standing in an offside position and it's going to come back. That's not the case. And it doesn't come back. Instead, it's a goal. It's a one no win for the U.S. Anything on that goal, Joe, or should we talk about individual performances? Really quick on that goal. The mm-hmm. the sequence that leads to Joe Bikini drawing a foul. So it's it's the U.S. winning the ball in yep. their own half. And you mentioned Busio springing, uh, playing a pass forward and it's Joe Bikini that he finds. And mm-hmm. Joe Akini drives forward and Edson Alvarez comes over and fouls Joe Akini. First of all, I don't think the foul was necessary. If I'm Mexico, I'm not super afraid of, of Nicholas Joe Akini on the ball in that spot. The U.S. also didn't have a ton of other numbers forward. But either way, Alvarez slides over to cover because Joe Akini is attacked roughly into the space that Chaka, Chaka Rodriguez, Mexico's right mm-hmm. back, would normally be defending. And I think that's also another fitting fitting moment from this game because we've talked so much about Mexico getting forward on that right side in the in the majority of this match it's Tecatito and Chaka Rodriguez Tecatito comes off but but Rodriguez is still in the game at this point and and he's not back he's he's forward attacking like Mexico had been for the entire match and the US finally were able to mount a real dangerous or at least Mexico seemed to think so counterattack into that space and it, and it was a well-placed run from Joe Akini. It just felt right. Again, it made sense that the U.S. found space there based off of the patterns in this game. So I think that was yeah. – I, I just not, I didn't notice that on first watch, but I noticed it on rewatch, and it felt right that the U.S. were able to find some joy down that lane. I, the thing that I noticed and then appreciated even more on the rewatch is Joe does the slow up and then accelerate move where you sort of – lull them into thinking like, oh, he's slowing up to take me on 1v1. And then there's that explosion of acceleration uh, and like just to create that little bit of separation. And that's where I think Alvarez thinks, okay, this is going to be a 1v1. I can go into it sort of cautiously. When that next sort of explosion happens, he has to then step in and concede that free kick. The thing that I thought was also interesting, I wish it were more to it. It's only like slightly related, but Alvarez then concedes the foul he has to do the sort of walk away like ah no big deal but he gets the booking he has a he has some words with the referee 
He jogs back. I think he has a couple more words with the official once he gets back into position. And once all that's done, we cut to I think the close-up of Kellen Acosta evaluating his options. And it's tough to see when the camera cuts back because it essentially cuts back as he has struck the ball. It's already kind of in the air. But on the wider slow-mo replay, I believe Alvarez, it's kind of blurry where I was watching, but I think it's Alvarez who is, again, not goal side of Miles Robinson. But I think he's adjusting his socks right before the ball is coming in slash as the ball is struck. And to me, I just wonder if that if that booking doesn't happen, if he's not drawing with the referee, does he get back into position and then pull the socks up and then realize, no, I got to body Miles Robinson and step in front of him? I don't know. But it is a good reminder of why you're not supposed to talk back to the official, but instead just get back into position and defend. Because <laughs> otherwise you might be pulling up your socks when a ball is played in and then you don't have position and now you don't have a win. And maybe you don't have a manager. We'll see what happens with Tata Martino. <laughs> I think that would be pretty premature. But if it is... Alvarez's socks that end with Tata Martino getting sacked, then uh, that would be hilarious and sad all at once. <laughs> but Joe, I think we've reached the point in the show when uh, we tend to get a little bit goofy. We tend to get a little bit delirious and it's fairly uh, late at night, early in the morning. But we're going to keep it going and be even more delirious as we happily <laughs> discuss individual performances. Because I think, first of all, an individual that I would like to spotlight is Greg Berhalter, who makes some... Risky changes in this game, sort of, but I think if you were, if you're watching these games, you realize there are certain things that needed to change, and I think he made smart choices. But overall in this tournament, he's been willing to change it up, to roll the dice, to sit Jackson Yule, to start Kellen Acosta, to back Kellen Acosta, to back Matthew Hoppy, to play left wing, but left forward, but left central midfielder. And I think looking at the substitutions and the way he just, he changes up the personnel, but changes up the approach and makes life difficult for Mexico while simultaneously making it easier for his own players I think he got it right pretty much from start to finish in this game and I think if if anyone was on the fence about whether or not Burhalter has kind of reached his players and has gotten his players to buy in and believe I think this game even more so than the Nations League proves that because the inexperience that the U.S. brought to brought to this starting 11 and brought to this tournament for them to get this championship is is pretty remarkable in my opinion. Everything that I've heard, and this is not from players or any sources that I have, this is from me listening to other people interviewing former U.S. men's players or whatever, people that, me listening to people that talk to people that know people inside of there this U.S. Go. camp. I'm there so many go. layers removed from this. Every Everything that I hear about that, everything that I listen to is people talking about how Berhalter has really reset the culture and has mm-hmm. players buying in and doing all the things that you just said there, Taylor. And it's hard sometimes, I think, for me to talk about that because it's so intangible. And I've never been in a situation like this. I don't really understand fully what it's like to to be in this environment. I, I can have little taste from playing sports as growing up as a kid, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same feeling. It's not the same situation. But it's encouraging to me to hear those people talk about players being bought in and players yeah. really believing in what Greg Peralta is trying to do, because it hasn't always been pretty. And there'll be moments beyond tonight that aren't pretty and that are frustrating and that we have questions about and criticize and all that stuff will be fair. But it, it it's cool to see players so clearly active and mobile. I mean, I keep coming back to Kellen Acosta. I tweeted out, this is the best game I've ever seen him play for the U.S. men's national team. I think this was his best game ever for the U.S. men's national yep. team. Not perfect on the ball. He's never going to be perfect on the ball. That's not his game. And you have to accept two or three or four under-hit passes or over-hit passes or turnovers on the ball where he doesn't see someone coming. You have to accept that stuff. And in return, you sometimes get things like this that we saw against Mexico in this Gold Cup final where he is 
everywhere. He is winning the ball. He's covering ground. He's winning the ball again. Oh, and then when you blinked and just went to go get a drink of water, he won the ball again. He was phenomenal covering so much space in midfield, really anchoring that press at the base of the U.S.'s midfield and also stepping forward as well, like you mentioned earlier on in this show, Taylor, to sometimes track it. And Alvarez, he was phenomenal. I think for me, he really is the best example and the best visualization and the best illustration of this U.S. group buying into the things that Greg Berhalter has got them doing. I mean, and and Kellen Acosta, again, is a player who in that first January camp when Greg Berhalter takes over – is sent home. Like, Kellen Acosta is sent home, and we don't know if it was fitness or a mentality thing or whatever, but that's a player who at the time we thought, like, well, that's that. That experiment is run, and then he plays well uh, in Major League Soccer. He starts getting looks from Greg Berhalter again, and he starts to justify it, but it's still sort of that, like, ah, like, ah, we'll see what happens. But for him to now have played, I agree with you, his best performance in a U.S. jersey, and in a way that, like, we needed him to do the things he did and the things he didn't do, we didn't really need. Because you're right that he's yeah. not going to, like, always be 100% in his passing. He's not always going to dribble through the lines and find open op- open options. But I don't think that's what we needed. I think we needed tonight a player who's going to put out fires, who was going to win everything he possibly could, who was going to make last-ditch tackles that had to be made and lead by example. And that is absolutely what Kellen Acosta did. And so I think Greg Berhalter sort of, showing that just because you might not be in the squad right now doesn't mean you're out forever, but instead we'll bring in players and give people opportunities and give people second chances and third chances. You might be frustrated by it and people might not like it, but I think it's it's core to like creating a national team and creating identity that you're never completely out, but you're never also definitely in and you've got to earn your spot. And so for Acosta to come in and do what he did, I think is is so impressive for the U.S. certainly to get the result they did is is incredibly impressive. But before this tournament, I, I mean, we when we did the preview, I think we came away with like if we're talking about the senior team before going into World Cup qualifying right now, if we have a 23-player squad, maybe three? I guess Matt Turner is maybe the fourth. So maybe there's four players from this squad that end up on that World Cup qualifying roster. And it's Sebastian Legette is maybe a starter, but more likely is going to be on the bench. Reggie Cannon is probably on the bench uh, if Dest is starting ahead of him. And then Daryl DK coming into this competition had maybe played himself into consideration for that starting striker spot. And now DK, maybe not the impressive tournament we had hoped for, uh, but I think we have Legette certainly still in the conversation to be in that World Cup qualifying squad. But then I think Matthew Hoppy could be in there. Kevin Acosta, certainly. Miles Robinson, James Sands, Matt Turner, at least. You could maybe throw Shaq Moore. Maybe Christian Roldan, if you wanted to be Eric Williamson uh, and be generous. If you wanted to be generous with Eric Williamson, you could. I think he certainly strengthens his case. But just that this team, for whom we had very limited expectations, now I think a bunch of the players have sort of made me feel like, yeah, they could be in there and I wouldn't be mad. Miles Robinson could start the next World Cup qualifier alongside John Brooks, and I would think, yeah, that's probably our strongest center-back pairing. And the way some of these players have developed for the team just makes me so optimistic for where we're going to go from here. Miles Robinson, another guy who had a phenomenal game. He was good defensively, solid, dealing with balls Mm -hmm. in the box, stepping out to deal with some of Mexico's danger on their right side, the U.S.'s left side. I thought he was really strong defensively. And then with the ball, he was good. He He's shown that a couple times in this tournament, I think back to the Jamaica game in the quarterfinals, where he's striding forward and hitting some meaningful progressive passes. There's one in the fourth minute. It ends up with, I believe, Jossie Zardes being off offside early on in this match, but it's it you really is correct. the U.S.'s best 
early moment of possession. It's all started with Miles Robinson. Then later, uh, it's it's towards the beginning of the second half, 54th minute. There it is. It's Jossie Zardes dropping into midfield to get on to a nice progressive ball from Miles Robinson. Then we already talked about that moment in the 71st minute where he's driving forward. I mean, that's three moments, and I'm sure there's a couple others that I'm missing. That's three. Really, I've got one for you. Please, yeah. 67th minute, uh, he gets the ball in, like – on one side of the pitch, he spots Shaq Moore, who's made a run down the right-hand side, and he turns and pings a diagonal over the top, but it like hits Shaq Moore perfectly in the chest. He settles it. The U.S. build from there. And it's when uh, Roldan like, bangs in a low-bending cross that I think Hoppy just can't get on the end of. But it's a big switch from Robinson that like when Mexico had kind of pressed and had numbers in good positions, he kind of completely alleviates that while simultaneously putting the U.S. in a good, strong attacking position. I like Miles Robinson a lot, Joe. I like him a lot. Yeah. No, me too. There's nothing – I have nothing but positive takeaways about Miles Robinson from this game. I will not be at all disappointed. I might even be surprised if he's not starting next to John Brooks, assuming they're both healthy for that El Salvador game to kick off World Cup qualifying in September. I wanted more from his center back partner in this game, James Sands, who I don't think has had the best – Last, uh, what would that be, 210-plus minutes for the U.S. <laughs> between the Qatar game and this game. Some shaky moments on the ball, e- even moments not caused by pressure. There's moments in this game where he's just passing the ball out of bounds. There's an early early moment, 37th minute. Okay, not so early. He's looking for Reggie Cannon on the right side in the U.S.'s possession setup, and he passes the ball out of bounds. There's another turnover in the 62nd minute. He's looking for Kellen Acosta. I don't know why he was looking for Acosta. He wasn't wasn't really open, or at least if you're if you're Busquets, maybe you play in that ball. If you're Acosta, you probably don't. Either way, Sands overhits him, and it's a miscommunication. The U.S. lose the ball. That's another one in that turnover section of the game for the U.S. in the second half. Just not Sands' best performance. He had some key defensive interventions, just like Robinson did, but not as solid even on that side of the ball, I would say. So more of a mixed bag from Sands. For this tournament in general, after a really strong start, I want to see more of him. I wouldn't be surprised if he's in World Cup qualifying at some point. He's probably going to be, but not quite the positive uh, finish to this tournament that maybe we'd hope for. With that said, as Brian Sharetta tweeted, uh, this USMNT conceded just one goal in 570 minutes at the Gold Cup, zero goals from the run of play. That's insane, says Brian. I agree, says Taylor. So you're right. James Sands caught a couple different times, but I think also put in so many good challenges and interceptions and kind of ball wetting tackles in this game that I am okay with him in the end. Uh, Joe, we, I feel like have talked a little bit about Kellen Acosta. Let's spend at least a couple more minutes talking about him here because he was just so important. And as you said, when you stepped away to take a drink, he won a tackle and then won another tackle. And even Stu Holden and John Strong, I think at one point in extra time, he won one. And as they started to praise him, he won one more. And then I think <laughs> they have won a third as well. Uh, not, not bad from Kellen Acosta. Not at all. And he he is the guy to back up Tyler Adams, right? He There's no question about that. And it feels like a long time ago now that we were talking about Jackson Ewell in that role. And nothing against Jackson Ewell, but Count Acosta has full-on won a spot in World Cup qualifying. Yep. He's versatile. He can play a number of different spots in midfield. But I think his best fit is as a, that ground-covering number six at the base of midfield, covering things in the press, winning balls in the press, stepping forward to win things in the press. He's the perfect guy to play that spot, and he's not always going to be as good as he was tonight. That's incredibly unrealistic. But if he can bring some of that defensive energy to cover the last 30 minutes of a game after Tyler Adams has played 60, or or if Tyler Adams is hurt, as he often is, I I feel a lot more comfortable with Kellen Acosta starting as a six after tonight than I did before tonight. 
right? It's it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. You put in an incredible shift against Mexico, and that does a lot for people's confidence. I'm sure it does a lot for uh, his confidence personally, Kellen Acosta. I'm sure it does a lot for Berhalter, and, and most importantly, Taylor. Ugh, it did a lot for me, man. Yeah, man. I, I'm right there with <laughs> you. I would like to then know your thoughts on Matthew Hoppy, who I thought like we saw everything he brings. As I said earlier, he's definitely a guy you want on your team and not on the opposition team because I think he annoys. He talks trash. He'll he'll kind of like stand over you after a tackle and just have a little bit of a look, have a little bit of a smile. I think he definitely frustrated Mexico, but I think also maybe frustrated his teammates at times. Sometimes maybe he could have played a ball in instead of instead of having a shot like he would. Sometimes maybe dribbling too much and getting robbed of possession. And then sometimes I think when he did dribble too much and get robbed of possession, then ran too much and over-pursued. And at times that was good in terms of like, oh, look, he's got the work ethic. He's trying to win the ball back. That's great. But other times when you over-pursue and vacate space and leave an entire side of the pitch wide open, don't love that as much. And he did do that a couple times as well. So I think where I am is that the positives outweigh the negatives and that mentality and the intensity of his approach means that there's going to be times when maybe he does go charging from one side of the pitch to the other, but so be it because he's still just a threat who's going to try stuff and try to make things happen. And similar to Giassi Zardes a little bit, doesn't seem to get too caught up and like, ah, I missed that chance. Ah, I shouldn't have done that one. So now my confidence is done. He seems really good at resetting, which I think there's a Ted Lasso reference to a goldfish in there. I'm not sure. Still haven't watched it. But (laughs) I thought that was sort of the performance I saw from Matthew Hoppe. So I'd like to know what you thought of him, Joe. Yeah, Taylor, believe it or not, Goldfish had short memories even before Ted Lasso came out. So, so you can really? still you can still bring that up as a fact without, really? uh, without having seen Ted Lasso. Oh. No, I mean, Matthew Hoppy is he's inconsistent, right? And you just walked us through all, all the different reasons as to why that is. And he he's good for one really nice moment, or, or maybe more than that. But in this game, there's one really nice moment that I loved a game. And, and so it comes in the shoot, just lost it in my notes. Here it is. 60th minute. It's a pass into Jossie Zardes that's ruled offside. It really didn't look offside to me, Taylor. Either way, Jossie Zardes minute, uh, missed the shot. He, mm-hmm. he didn't uh, get that on frame. So it didn't end up mattering. But it's it's a beautiful ball. Hoppy's out on the right wing and he, he times it perfectly and weights it perfectly to connect with Zardes as Zardes is trying to get in behind and break into that space beyond Mexico's back line. It made me think back to that pass against Qatar, right, where he lays it on the floor to Daryl Dike. He's on the left wing this time. He just has the ability to break a game open. He's not really consistent and wholly effective in how he does that yet. I think that's the next step. I think I've said this before. I can't remember at this point. I guess I'm the goldfish now in this situation. <laughs> he, he He's not uh, the best at picking his moments, and that needs to improve, and it left the U.S. out to dry a few times in this game. But I've still really enjoyed what I've seen from Matthew Hoppy. I'm surprised at how much I've enjoyed it. I'm surprised at how well he's fit in that left wing, sometimes drifting over to the right side or just playing right wing. I'm really, I'm really impressed by what he's brought to this tournament, despite how inconsistent it's been. Yeah, I, I, I think I am there with you. And I think there's just other little moments like I shouldn't love, but I do. Uh, I, I forget where it is. I have it in my notes. It just made me so happy. Uh, but he, Hoppy made me happy. At one point, like there's a free kick from Mexico. The ball rolls about five yards away and it goes like straight to the feet of Matthew Hoppy, who puts his foot on it and then just kind of rolls up behind him and then stares straight at the Mexican players who complain and just has a little smirk and then turns and walks away. And just that moment of like, I'm going to wait for you to notice I have the ball 
then I'm going to tap it away, then I'm going to annoy you like two or three more times in a three-second sequence. There's an element of gamesmanship there. There's an element of I'm trying to get under your skin. I want you to make too aggressive of a tackle on me, and maybe you'll injure me, but more likely is that, like you'll get a little piece of me, but you'll also get a card, and I will be in your head. And I think Hoppy had a few different moments in this game where he did sort of just take a player's focus off the game and onto him, and that frustration can lead to rash decisions and poor positioning. And I think you need a player like that who's just going to try to instigate and cause problems, ideally for the opposition and not for his own team. And I think (laughs) Hoppy did that really well. So he was a sort of agent of chaos in a good way. I thought a position that can sometimes be agent of chaos-esque would be goalkeeper, and I was thankful for Matt Turner. I thought for a minute we were going to have another U.S. performance where the goalkeeper, who we've kind of come to love and enjoy, has a howler in like in the biggest moment possible. David Ochoa did that for uh, the U.S. youth national team, but here, after that opening sort of awkward moment, I thought Matt Turner was once again very impressive and just reliable between the sticks for the U.S., Okay, so first of all, real quick, going back to Matthew Hoppy. Matthew Hoppy feels like a guy who goes way too hard at adult Sunday League six v six or whatever. Yes, he does, and just feels yes, no shame. He, he feels absolutely no shame, and just does not care about your the knee you sprained in college <laughs> eight years ago or whatever. Dude, you're totally that is that is. And then when you're like, hey man, it's adult league. It's like, yeah, I want to win, <laughs> so play better. Like it's it's there's no backing down. There's no there's uh, no it's it's zero or a hundred, yep. and his dial is set to one hundred and ten. Yeah, yeah. So that's my Matthew Hoppy thought real quick. I like quick. it. I like uh, it Matt a lot. Turner, again, great game. Comes up really big in a few moments. He, I don't think he had any incredibly difficult saves. He has a nice save off of Funes Mori's header in the 10th or 11th minute off of a yep. corner kick for Mexico. He has a couple other nice moments in gold defensively stopping shots in this game. But doesn't doesn't pull out a ton of incredible moments, as I said, but just solid. Solid guy. At this point, we trust his shot stopping. And it, it, every time I watch him, it feels like, man, I don't think there's anybody else in this goalkeeper pool who makes me feel as comfortable when a ball is coming at him as it does when the ball is coming at Matt Turner. And the fact that he's played as well as he has for the Revolution in this tournament, we, we talked about this after the Qatar game. It's good news for him. It's good news for the U.S. And it won't shock me at all if he's starting that game against El Salvador in September. Whew. Joe, I'm, I'm feeling good, man. I just keep, I keep sort of pinching myself because I, I am surprised that the U.S., I mean, not overall, but just like I did not expect them to win this tournament or at least not win it in such dramatic fashion as to make me this, this happy. Joe, we, we've talked about a lot of players. We haven't talked about a couple. Is there anybody that you did want to mention before we, we call this one reviewed? Jossie Zardes. Man, I thought Jossie Zardes was so, so, so good mm. in this game and maybe, this is going to sound harsh to Daryl DK, but maybe it's just in contrast to DK's relative ineffectiveness over the last few games mm-hmm. of this tournament. But this was Zardes' best game of the Gold Cup, and he has had some minutes in this tournament so far. He was just strong with a defender on his back. He was strong, and that's something that DK hasn't been. 22nd minute, Zardes has a great moment of hold-up play. Then uh, first half stoppage time, Zardes has a defender on his back, and he still is able to to play the ball over. I believe it's to Eric Williamson. Yeah, it, he has a Rajo on his back, Zardes does. Then he plays the ball to the right to Eric Williamson, who then slips Areola through for a shot. It's not a great chance, but that doesn't happen. The U.S. can't even break out of their own half if Zardes isn't showing some strength and some composure on the ball in that moment. There's another few moments in this game that I really enjoyed from Zardes, but just overall, he's another guy who he is going to be involved in World Cup qualifying, and it won't surprise me if he is in that group at Daryl DK's expense. Maybe they're both in there, maybe they're not, but Zardes is a guy, along with Josh Sargent, who I fully expect to be involved in a real way 
with this U.S. team uh, throughout the fall and into the early part of 2020 and into the World Cup if the U.S. should make it. And Daryl DK is obviously a very young player who's yeah, still pretty inexperienced at professional level and at international level, obviously. And I say that to then say that I thought this game was a good example of what Giassi Zardes brings. And people are going to be frustrated with him and make jokes about him, and so be it. But at the same time, I couldn't help but notice how often the United States front three did look more coordinated. It did seem like they were sort of better in their communication, better in their positioning and ha- and their distancing between each other. And then I just think that they played as a really good unit. I thought Jesse Zardes did as much hold up play as could have been expected, but fought for everything, hassled Mexico, drew fouls, conceded fouls, but I was okay with that too. And I think just we saw sort of what Burhalter keeps going back to in that number nine spot, which is he wants a player who can be mobile, who can stretch the defense at times, but can also drop in or overload one side if the situation requires, and is really just coachable. I think he wants a player who we can call over and say, hey, I told you to do this, that's not working, do this instead. Attack the left instead of the right. Take on this player instead of that player. And I think he processes it and rolls with it. And I think that's what Burhalter wants. So I'm with you. It's not, he's never going to be the most inspiring striker, I think, for the national team. I like, and I think there's reasons for that that we could debate on at another time. But I think he still is another player who remains in that conversation for that number nine position because there is a relative lack of depth. But I think also every time he's in there, he shows at the very least you're going to get fight and work rate and a coachability that other players don't have, at least not right now. So I'm with you that I think we should spotlight Giassi Zardes and what he brought to this game and to this team. Boom. Okay, I'm out of material, Taylor. I'm now officially out of material. Then I think I just want to praise one more time this national team, this U.S. national team, and and Greg Berhalter. I think so much credit should be given to him for the way he gets this team to buy in, for the way he makes his adjustments, for the way he kind of backs his players – going way back to losing to Mexico and to trying to play out and just getting smothered and completely overwhelmed by Tata Martino in Mexico and to make practical real world adjustments to not just be like, no, we're going to keep doing that no matter what, that's how we're going to play, but to still play that way at times, but then adjust it in other ways and to just get your players into a position where they know exactly what they need to do in the exact right moments and how to execute. But if they're a substitute coming in, they still have that same level of intensity and dedication and awareness of what's going on in the game. I, I think he got his subs right. I think he got his tactical adjustments right. He backed his players to get a result, and that's exactly what they did. So, again, credit to the U.S. national team, credit to Greg Berhalter. I'm just, again, very happy, Joe Lowry. I'm very happy. As you should be, man. This was a fun (laughs) game, an entertaining game. The U.S. wasn't the better team for large stretches, but, man, this game was fun, even though there was no goal until, what, the 117th minute? This is a game you show people who don't care about soccer that might get them to start caring about soccer. Maybe it lacked... Uh, the brawls that the Nations League final had. And maybe that's what really draws people in. I don't know. But still, this was a fun game. It's a fun result. It's a good result for the U.S. And it's an encouraging one as well as we look forward to September, which is now just one month away officially. Uh, So things are coming thick. They're coming fast. And the U.S. looks ready. Uh, Well, Joe, uh, the U.S. men's looks ready for World Cup qualifying. Hopefully the U.S. women are ready for their semifinal matchup. Oh, yeah. With Canada. That one kicks off. In fewer than two hours. Uh, so maybe we should wrap this one up uh, and, and then hopefully get it out, then hopefully get a few hours of sleep, and then we'll be back to watch the USA-Canada. Joe, any other final notes before we call this one reviewed in full? 
I now officially pronounce this show reviewed. Is that how that works, Taylor? Do I have the power to do that? I believe you do. I will will grant you that authority. (laughs) But Joe, thank you for for staying up late to talk about all the many things we've talked about today and for covering this whole tournament with me. It's been very fun. It's been fun to see the U.S. develop and and change their approach and just become a strong unit that in the end uh, gets the title, gets the win, and gives us two U.S. victories over Mexico in one summer. Uh, I do find myself wondering if Daryl, uh, were he still with us, would have taken two U.S. wins over Mexico in two different finals over England winning the Euros. Hmm. I'm not sure. It would have been a tough one. I think he probably <laughs> still would have gone England, but I like to think that the U.S. did him br- proud, doubly so this summer. So thank you to the U.S. for that. Joe, thank you for taking all the time to talk with me this evening. Man, it's a joy. It's an honor to be here, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Listeners, it's a joy and an honor to be here with Joe talking to you all. So thank you for joining us. Hopefully you're still celebrating and we will talk to you all again very, very, very soon. Very soon.